Welcome to the East Memorial Student Podcast, your source for the biblical teaching of East Memorial Student Ministries. I'm your host, Matthew Ronsky, pastor of Students and Discipleship at East Memorial Baptist Church in Prattville, Alabama. When I talk about probably one of the most famous uh, scenes or parts of the movie, uh, which is the wax on, wax off scene, right? When he first goes to Mr. Miyagi and wants to train karate, and Mr. Miyagi agrees, and you know they, they form that pact, I'm going to teach you, but you're going to listen to everything I, I say, and then he begins by having him wash and wax the car, right, and going through all these different sequences, and eventually the, the kid gets frustrated, thinking like, hey, I, I want to learn karate, and you're having me just do all this, you know, these chores, and then there's the moment where Mr. Miyagi basically, you know, has him do the motions and then starts punching at him and kicking at him and all those movements now, it's like muscle memory and he's blocking them and, and then it clicks like, okay, I've been learning karate the whole time, right? By just doing these basic, you know, ordinary things that seem like they don't have a purpose and yet they do. Well, in our series, how does this relate to our series When covering a topic like the doctrines of grace, there is going to be a temptation and even a desire to jump straight to the, what we could say, the juicy parts of the topic, right? Things like predestination. Can mankind choose God? You know, questions like that that are often the major uh, topics of debate in issues like this. However, there are some foundational topics that we need to cover first before we get into the action of the series, so to speak, no pun intended. But there are some more foundational, basic truths that we need to establish before we get into some of the more difficult topics of the series. And to begin, we need to talk about the nature and the character and the power of of God. So we need to begin with the person of God, or as we're going to find out tonight, the persons of God, because there is a trinity that we're going to talk about. And the reason we need to begin with God and his nature, character, and power is because what you believe about God and how you think about God will determine what you will believe and really what you will accept or be able to accept about topics like predestination or man's ability to choose God and so forth. These foundational topics will set the stage for how you are gonna process some of those more difficult issues. And so tonight we are gonna begin with the foundations, with the, with the basics, and we're gonna cover two foundational truths that the Bible reveals about God, two foundational truths. And the first one, the first foundational truth that we're gonna cover is the truth that God is the creator. God is the creator. Now, here's here's just a question for you to think within your own mind. When you think about God being the creator of the universe, how do you envision it? What images come to your mind? And what I mean by that 
when you think about God as the creator, do you imagine it, for example, where God is like an artist who creates a masterpiece painting or sculpture? Is that how you think about it? Now, if that's how you might think about it, the problem with comparing God to a painter or a sculpturist is that artists like those, they create their masterpieces out of pre-existing material, right? So the sculpturist doesn't create the stone as well as the sculpture. He takes pre-existing stone or metal, whatever he's working with, and then he shapes it. Same thing with the painter, right? The painter typically doesn't create the canvas, create all the brushes, and, and maybe they create a lot of it, but all of the materials that would go into creating those things they already exist. So this analogy, although you could say maybe it's similar in some respects, it falls short. It falls short because God is not like the artist who creates a painting or sculpture out of pre-existing materials. According to scripture, God creates everything out of nothing. Everything out of nothing. In fact, there's a term that, a fancy term, that's in Latin, okay, so I'm not a, a Latin speaker. I don't know if I'm gonna pronounce this correctly, so don't judge me if you did learn the Latin. Um, but it's called creati uh, creatio ex nihilo, right? Is that pretty good, anybody? Okay, all right. And what does this mean? It means creation out of, out of nothing. And so what you'll often hear is that God created ex nihilo, that's the way it usually, they won't say the first one, creatio. You know, they'll just say, God creates ex nihilo. He creates out of nothing. And to show you this, I'm gonna take you to two passages in the New Testament that demonstrate this truth. The first one being in John chapter one, verse three. So if, you're in your, if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. John chapter one, verse three. It'll also be up on the screen. And here in this verse... It says, all things came into being through him. And that him is referring to Jesus Christ. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, apart from Jesus Christ, nothing came into being that has come into being. Is anything that has been created, it has all been created through Jesus Christ. There is nothing that has ever existed apart from the creative action of Jesus Christ. One more passage that demonstrates this, Colossians chapter one, Colossians chapter one, verse 16. Very similar, but this adds a few details that are important to highlight. So Colossians chapter one, verse 16, it says this, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So, as we see from these two verses in the New Testament, again, there is nothing that exists in this universe that God did not first create. And we need to understand that. And that includes visible things like matter, physical materials, that would include that. But it also includes invisible things, which is a reference to things that are spiritual 
in nature. So what would that include? That would include the angels who are spiritual beings. They don't exist apart from God creating them. And it would even include spirits of living beings on earth, including the human spirit, which then includes the human mind and the human will. Now, why is this point about the nature of God's creation important? Why is this important? Why am I emphasizing this creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing? Well, there was a question last week in our live polling exercise that we did, and it was the question, does God have the power to convert somebody to Christianity against their will? Does he have the power to convert somebody to Christianity against their will? Well, some people would say no, and I think there was between 20 or 30% that said no. We don't, I don't know who, who was. It's all anonymous. But most people, I would say not just some, I would say a good number of people would say no because they view the human mind and the human will as something that God cannot interfere with or change. And why do they think that? Well, often, this is my assumption, that part of this belief comes from personal experience. And as we live our life and we, we think our thoughts and we make the decisions that we do day after day, it feels like that we have complete control of our thoughts and our decisions. We don't feel like robots. And so because we don't feel like robots, then we think, well, yeah, no, God doesn't have control over that because I'm not a robot. And so this then, that becomes the answer of most people that no, God does not have the power to convert somebody to Christianity against their will. However, let me ask a follow-up question related to this. Did God create the human spirit, which includes the human mind and the human will? And the answer that we should all come to based on Scripture is that, yes, God created those things. Well, if God created the human spirit, which includes the mind and the will, then by nature, he has creative power over the human mind and the human will. He owns it. He controls it. This means then that God does have the power to convert somebody to Christianity against their will. Now, whether or not he would, that's a different question. And that's a different issue that we will address later in this series. But for our purposes right now, what I, wanna, what I want us to understand and to believe is that regardless of what we think about what he would do, we need to believe that God does have the power to forcefully change the mind and will of a person. And to demonstrate this from Scripture beyond the principle of creation that we've, we've been going through or we've been talking about, I do want to read through one fairly long passage of Scripture that displays God's power over the human mind and will. And for many of us, this should be familiar because it's going to be in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4. And of course, we studied Daniel not too long ago, so hopefully this brings back many fond memories of that series and that study. But let's go to Daniel chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse 13. And we're kind of jumping into this, but this is the chapter that includes one of a few visions that King Nebuchadnezzar received from God. 
And he's about to describe his vision and then later bring Daniel in to give the interpretation. But let's start in verse 13. And here King Nebuchadnezzar is speaking and he says, I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. And behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. He had seen a vision of this large, of this large tree. So the, the, the angelic watcher says, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with the band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and, it, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This, this is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, which was another name for Daniel, Tell me its interpretation inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. So at this point, Daniel is then going to begin to interpret the dream, identifying that the tree is a symbol for King Nebuchadnezzar himself. And going to now verse 24, we'll pick up there. This is the interpretation that Daniel gives. He says, This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, or of God, which has come upon my Lord, lowercase l, the king. That is King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 25, That you may be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time or seven years will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with its roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. So there is the interpretation. And now picking up in verse 28, we're going to see the fulfillment of this vision. So verse 28, it says, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. And the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself has built as a royal re residence by the, by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? So then it says, verse 31, While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. 
You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? All right, lesson learned. That was a bad idea to read that much scripture when I'm still getting my voice back and recovering from the weekend. But we made it. We've read this passage of scripture. And what do we see? Do we see God forcefully changing the mind of King Nebuchadnezzar, giving him a, the mind of an animal? And the answer, of course, is yes, we do. And why did God do this? Well, King Nebuchadnezzar was proud. He thought that he had accomplished everything that he did according to his own power and for his own glory. And so God was going to humble him and God was going to demonstrate to King Nebuchadnezzar just how powerful God is. And so God would give the king the mind of an animal and strip away his kingly power in a moment. But also God would then restore his mind and give him back his power in a moment when the decreed time had passed. So to conclude this point, and tying this all together, let me give this summary. And I have a slide to, for the benefit of you all. A summary at this point of God's creative power is this. God is the creator who made everything out of nothing, including the mind and will of mankind. This means that God has the creative power to change the mind and will of a person whenever he wants. And of course, we saw this with King Nebuchadnezzar. So, right, we've established this first foundational truth about God. One more to cover in tonight's message. And it is a truth that is going to set us up for our message next week. And that is the truth that God is a trinity that God is a trinity. And here's another question to kickstart this foundational truth. And that is this, when you think of God, how do you visualize God in your mind? How do you visualize God? Now, I hope that all of us would visualize God as a personal being compared to some impersonal force. All right, so if you're thinking Star Wars, you're really wrong. Okay, you're just, you're way off. So I would hope that we would all visualize God as a personal being. But here's another thing. If you visualize God as a personal being, do you visualize God as a singular person? And if we're going to be honest, I think that it is common for a lot of us, even those of us who grow up in 
Christian churches to visualize God as a singular person. Why? Well, because when we use the term God, we often use singular pronouns, he, him, right? And so we naturally then think of God as a singular person. However, if you visualize God as a singular person, a singular person who had no relationships prior to his creation of angels and mankind, then that is an unbiblical and non-Christian viewpoint, even though it is easy to think that way. And, and, and really what this comes down to is one of the most major distinctive beliefs of Christianity, a belief that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world, including other monotheistic religions like Islam and modern Judaism. And this distinctive belief is the belief that there is one God who is three persons. And let me take you through some passages, right? This is wax on, wax off. We're gonna establish the basics. Let me take you through some passages that establish why we believe in a Trinitarian God. And let's go to begin in Genesis chapter one, verses 26 to 27. It says, starting in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and so forth. Now look at verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So in this passage, what we see is that we see a reference to a singular God. All the verbs, if we want to get nerdy for a moment, all the verbs in Hebrew, they are in the singular form. There are singular versus plural forms of verbs in the Hebrew. They're all in the singular form, such as said or created. Also, we see the personal pronouns in verse 27 are also in the singular form, his and he. So we see a reference to a singular God. Yet, when God speaks in these verses, God says, let us create. Well, who's the us? They can't be angels because nowhere in scripture are angels ever said to have created or participated in the creation of mankind. So who is the us? Well, the us are the other persons of the Trinity. In Genesis, turn over now to chapter 19. Here's another verse that displays the multi-personhood of God. Genesis 19, verse 24. Genesis 19, verse 24. It says, Then the Lord, or this is Yahweh in the original Hebrew, then Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. So it is saying that Yahweh rained down brimstone and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. How can Yahweh rain down fire from Yahweh? Well, the conclusion is that there are at least, at this point, two persons who are both called Yahweh, who both go by the name Yahweh. All right, let's now turn to the New Testament, back to John chapter 1. And we'll be in verse 1 this time. 
John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right, reading that verse, how can the Word, who we understand in John chapter 1 to be a reference to Jesus, how can Jesus be with God and be God at the same time? How does that work? Well, the answer is there must be at least two persons who are equally God. And of course, we understand all throughout John's gospel that Jesus is God, but then he constantly refers to his Father, who is also God. We'll now go to John chapter 14. At least I'm keeping you in the same books. So two in Genesis, two in John. John chapter 14, verse 26 And Jesus says, verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So here in this verse, Jesus references this Helper, the Holy Spirit, and he also references his Father, and he references himself. And so based on this verse, Jesus is clearly referring to three separate persons, himself, the Father, and this third person, the Holy Spirit, who are all working together. Well, then we might ask, okay, well, who is the Holy Spirit? Go to one more verse, and that is in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 to 4. And this will be the last passage we look at this evening, but we're going to spend some time talking about it. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 to 4. It says in verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Verse 4, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have lied not to men, but to God. What I want you to see is that the Holy Spirit here, referenced in verse 3, is clearly identified as God in verse 4. So the Holy Spirit is God. So if we tie that back to John 14 and John 1, and everything else what we've covered, it is clear, according to Scripture, that there are three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, who are distinct persons and yet who are equally God. Who are equally God. Well, then we could ask the question, okay, well, based on this, how is it then that we as Christians can say that there is only one God instead of perhaps three gods? Why do we say that there is one God? Well, one scripture says that there's one God. Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. All right, so, and then we see references all throughout scripture. Well, I think we even read it at the beginning of our service that Charlie read the passage. There is no other God. I am he. No other God has existed before me. No other God has existed after me. So scripture refers clearly to one God, and yet as we just went through all these passages, this one God is also three distinct persons. Well, how do we reconcile this? How can we 
say that we believe in one God who is also three persons? The answer is because when we refer to God being one, we are not referring to God being one person. And that's a clear distinction that we need to understand. We are not saying as Christians that God is both one person and also three persons. That would be a contradiction contradiction if we said that. When the Bible refers to God as one, when the Bible refers to God as one, it is referring to a singular entity that is made up of three distinct but interconnected persons who share the same divine nature. And we'll, we'll say that again if you didn't catch that. Well, I'll say it again right here. When the Bible refers to God as one, it is referring to a singular entity that is made up of three distinct but interconnected persons who share the same divine nature. And just for the sake of our understanding, it is possible to have a singular entity that is made up of multiple persons or groups. For example, when we refer to East Memorial Baptist Church, do we use this language? Do we say, yeah, East Memorial Baptist Church are moving to a new building down the street? No. No, we say East Memorial Baptist Church is moving, singular, to a new building across the street. We refer to East Memorial Baptist Church as a singular entity. Yet, we understand that East Memorial Baptist Church is made up of many different members. So we, even in our own language, in our own usage of language, we understand that there can be a singular entity made up of multiple groups or people. Well, in the Trinity, you have the Father, the Son, the Spirit, who are three interconnected persons, and yet who share the same divine nature, all three being equally God in nature. And what I mean by equally God in nature is that all three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're co-eternal, for example. They've all existed for eternity. They are, co think of acts like, like creation. When they create, they're co-creators. They together work together to accomplish the same purpose in something like creation. So for example, when we say that God created the world in the singular sense, even going back to Genesis 1, and he created them in his own image, well, we are referring to an entity, a singular entity of three persons who created the world together as an eternal, interconnected, and exclusive group. That's how the Bible is depicting God. And this is not a contradiction. Let me give you some other illustrations to demonstrate that this is not a contradiction. If I say, for example, that a strawberry is both sweet and sour, is that a contradiction? Yes, because I'm talking about the same property, taste, the type of taste. If it's, if it's sweet, it can't be sour, right? Or, we, okay, maybe more opposite, bitter. I can't say it's sweet and it's bitter. Now, maybe you could say it starts out sweet and then it ends bitter, but they can't be both at the same time, all right? We understand that. But if I were to say a strawberry is both, is both sweet and red, that's not a contradiction. 
Let me use another one that's maybe more clear. If I say the sky is blue, but the sky is also red at the same time, is that a contradiction? Yes, because I'm talking about the color and both can't be true. Both can't be red and blue at the same time. If I say though that the sky is blue and the sky is cloudy, that's not a contradiction because we're talking about two different categories, two different things. So relating this to God, if I were to say God is both one person and three persons, is that a contradiction? Yes, because we would be talking about the same category, personhood. So that would be a contradiction. If I were to say that God is one divine entity of three eternal and interconnected persons, is that a contradiction? No, it's not. Does this make sense? Are we hopefully understanding the Trinity a little bit better? And if it doesn't make sense, I, I, you know, and I'll just say this, I think oftentimes the problem can be that we are so rooted in our conception of God sometimes as a singular person and how we think about him, how we refer to him, that it just, it's so difficult for our minds to wrap around it. But I would put forward and I would encourage that if that's the case, we do need to change how we think about God. When we think about God, we do need to think about all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Persons who are equally divine, they're equally God, they are interconnected with one another, meaning they've never existed apart from one another. They're in perfect relationship with one another. When they all work together to do something, they're all doing it in one purpose. They're, all, they're interconnected, yet they are distinct persons. So when Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, giving the Lord's Prayer, that say to the Father, right? Father, hallowed be your name. He's not saying that that's also a reference to the Son. If you're praying to the Father, if you're referring to the Father, you are praying to God the Father, not God the Son. There is that distinction. Even though by praying to God the Father, does the Son hear you? Does the Holy Spirit hear you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because they are interconnected with one another. They are in a relationship with one another but they are distinct persons. And if we have to change our conception of God to conform with Scripture and how Scripture depicts God, that's what we have to do, right? That's what we have to do. Now, why is all this important, okay? I just went through not, not only a complex topic, but what should be a very foundational Christian topic. This is a, a major distinctive belief of Christianity. This really is part of the basics of Christianity. If you get the Trinity wrong, you get Christianity wrong. And so why am I talking about this, especially as it relates to our series on the doctrines of grace? Well, as I mentioned, and we're coming to our conclusion here, as I mentioned at the beginning of tonight's message, these basic truths will impact our ability to understand and accept the major parts of the doctrines of grace, such as predestination, election, whether man has the ability to choose God, whether man can lose their salvation, all of these things. These will impact it. Now, regarding the Trinity specifically, next week, we are going to discuss the glory of 
of God, the glory of God, which will have major implications for the rest of this study. And when we talk about the glory of God, we are specifically going to talk about the way in which God prioritizes and protects his glory. We could even say it like this, the way in which God is jealous for his glory and how that begins to impact everything else. Now, when we will talk about God being jealous for his glory, this is why this becomes important. We are not, we will not be talking about a single person who once existed in a vacuum all by himself and then who created angels and humans and all the rest of creation and then who as an individual person, singular person, then demands to be worshipped like some kind of self-centered individual. That's not what we're going to be talking about. Instead, we will be talking about three persons not just one person, but three persons who have existed in a relationship together from eternity, no beginning, no end. Three persons who are loyal and faithful to each other before everything else, including the creation that they make together. And three persons who are jealous for the glory of each other not just the glory of themselves as an individual person, but for the glory of each other. In other words, the son is not just jealous for his glory. He's jealous for the glory of his father, for the glory of the Holy Spirit. And you just go to each person of the Trinity. The father is not just jealous for his glory. He's jealous for the glory of his son, the glory of his spirit. And so as we approach this topic next week, we are going to see that our understanding of the Trinity and our understanding of everything that we've covered tonight is going to be very critical and important. So come back next week as we dive deeper into these foundational truths. And then eventually we will get to some of the meaty, action-packed topics of this series. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, we are Grateful to be here this evening. Thank you for providing a space uh, for us to meet. Um, thank you for uh, your word and the ability to study your word and to read your word, Lord. Please help us understand these fundamental truths of your faith, truths that you have revealed in your word, Lord. And uh, wherever we need help, Lord, you know it best. And so please, Lord, help us. I pray for all these students and the adults that are here this evening, that you be with them, that you protect them, Help them grow more in their faith and their understanding of you, Lord, and, and just be with them uh, forever and always. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the East Memorial Student Podcast. For more information and updates about East Memorial Student Ministries, please visit our website at eastmemorial.org. You can also follow us on our Instagram page titled EMBC Student. 